Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, We're kicking off Monday's official start of summer, savoring refreshing new food and wine trends. We're talking flower syrups galore. Think violets, roses, lilacs, and elderberries, adding a floral twist to drinks. Plus, smoky wine caused by California wildfires has been tough to sell, but winemakers are embracing inventive ways to make sure nothing goes to waste. At the same time, wine lovers are drinking less red wine, sipping more white and rosé. And have you heard? Foodies are time-traveling back to the 80s. They can't seem to get enough of French onion soup mix, sun-dried tomatoes, and other old-school ingredients. Those stories and more on our Food and Wine Roundtable Summer Season Edition. Later in the show, in the 60s, civil rights-era Chicago art collective Afrikobra helped shape the Black arts movement, and a Roxbury artist was a key part of it. Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art showcases the work of local visual artist Napoleon Jones Henderson in a new exhibition, I Am As I Am a Man. But first, joining me now... Amy Traverso, senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of GBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Kelly. Also with me, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Kelly. I'm glad to have both of you. Let's jump right in. So, summer brings to mind flowers, Amy. But now we're drinking our flowers <laughs> with these uh, <laughs> floral uh, floral elixirs, as some are calling it, and flower syrups for the rest of us for cocktails and sodas. Uh, what are they and why, are, why is everybody all excited about it? You know, I think this is a trend that was really boosted by obviously Instagram and TikTok because it's such a beautiful visual. A lot of flowers, not all though, and you need to, you know, do your research, but a lot of flowers are perfectly edible. Lilacs, elderberry flowers, or elderflowers, I should say, um, roses, violets. So you kind of make a simple syrup, which is equal parts sugar and water, and then you add flowers to them. It colors the the syrup, a beautiful color. I mean, for example, I made a, a lilac and blueberry syrup this weekend um, with the last of my lilacs. And it, you know, it's just gorgeous to look at. It has these wonderful fruity floral aromas. And, and yeah, I like to just honestly, like put a little bit in some seltzer water for a really refreshing drink. Um, and, you know, if you videotape it while you're making it, you've got a really nice video that's probably going to do well on social media. I hear hibiscus is very popular as part of one of the florals. Yes, it is. And it's, um, it's, it's, you know, really high in vitamin C. Um, it's got this wonderful 
tart flavor. Um, I mean, and it's obviously if you spend any time in the Caribbean, it's very popular drink there. I, I bought a bag of hibiscus petals when I was in Miami recently and have them for, you know, soaking and making teas and things. So the hibiscus is a particularly good one. And is this, other than adding it to seltzer, and uh, you could also do an alcohol thing, is there something else we're supposed to be doing with it? Or we just look at it? Remember the, the royal wedding of, of, oh, right, of right. Harry? Yeah, they had an elderflower uh, scented cake. So you can pour, like you can make a pound cake and, and then poke holes in the top of it while it's still warm and drizzle the syrup over the top. And you will just have this like, totally delightful or you could fold it into whipped cream um you mm. could let's say like if i was if i'm making an, a blueberry crisp or a blueberry pie i might pour a little bit of that blueberry lilac syrup in there for just and you know the, then there's the middle eastern tradition of of rose water and orange blossom water so this is very ancient you know uh, sort of food um, technology that we're using but it's kind of just a rediscovering of something and as you pointed out, you can make it yourself easily, but a lot of uh, companies have sprung up with ready-made syrups for those of us who don't feel like doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's available <laughs> to be purchased. <laughs> so that's summer in a glass, I would say. Um, something else that I think, Jonathan, is indicative of maybe summer, but perhaps a longer-term trend, and that is, I was surprised to know, a red wine decline. So people are drinking less red wine, enough to note it. And that's in favor of particularly sparkling has gone up tremendously, but white um, and rosé, which has never gone away, as you and I have discussed at great length. What do you think? Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, we're absolutely seeing a lot of growth in, as you say, white wine, rosé, sparkling wine, but also growth in cocktail, mm. uh, growth in other light spirits. The sales of gin especially have just the, the increases during COVID times of the sales of gin have just been absolutely astronomical. And the growth in these other markets has to a certain degree been at the expense of red wine. Now, one thing that's important to remember is that in 2021, wine sales in general were up 18%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is a little bit of a, we're, we're, ta we're talking about a little shift in the market, but it's a shift in a rising market. So let me ask you this question. Would, for example, sparkling red wine be selling well? So are there certain kinds of wine you know, that are declining that we can see, whereas others are sort of remaining steady or in fact increasing? I would say in general, we're seeing challenges to really traditional red wines, particularly red Bordeaux, hmm. uh, Rioja, um, old school red Burgundy, even Chianti, even traditional Chianti. We're seeing real challenges to, you know, your father's Oldsmobile, you know, your, mm. your father's era classic wines. Um, we're seeing a lot of openness and growth in blended wines. Ironically, some of these old school wines are also blended, but California blends, blends of uh, Zinfandel, Syrah, less traditional blends. We're seeing a lot of growth in that market too. I'd say that those represent more casual 
Mm. more approachable, more accessible, less traditional, literally less traditional wines and less traditional, if we can say this, less traditional tasting wine. They taste more modern. Mm. Um, They're riper. They're rounder. They're easier. They're less ponderous. You know, they've got a little more positive mental attitude. Um, (laughs) They're more like they're in, in, in general terms, they're more likable. And consequently, people like them more. Okay. Um, so that's where we're seeing some some good red wine growth. Well, while you're talking, let's talk about um, what you say is a kind of resetting the table as we continue to make our way out of, of COVID. You're observing new sort of combinations and experimentations with how one goes out to eat. And one of them is this Cabo restaurant. Tell us all about Cabo. Well, so one of the things that the founders of Cobble, which is a BYOB restaurant in Coolidge Corner, Brookline, one of their goals, one of their long-term goals is to bring, and I know this sounds grandiose, to bring tech sector wages to the hospitality industry. Not $15 an hour, but $55 an hour. And the only way to do that I believe and they believe is not to trim the model and cut expenses. Tweaking it is not going to do it. It's going to have to be broken apart and completely put back together in a totally different way. And this is what Emily Vina and Rachel Trudell are doing with Cobble. Emily does all of the cooking and serving, and it is BYOB. And this is part of the standing laws, liquor laws, wine and beer laws of the town of of Brookline. Brookline absolutely uh, permits this. And in addition to having this BYOB restaurant on the top floor, they are opening a BYOB bar on the ground floor. And it is just absolutely shattering to the traditional model of what is a restaurant and what is a bar. But Cobble has been open for two years already. We're doing some wine classes there. It's just a just a great, great venue. The Boston Wine School is doing, just yes. to be clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Boston Wine School doing some mm-hmm. classes there um, mm-hmm. as well. And um, so Cobble's already been open and that has already worked for two years. Hmm. And it's vegetable forward, we should note. It's not vegan, but it's vegetable forward, which is a part of a larger trend going on as well. Absolutely. The the menu is, it's a preface. It's like a fixed menu, but there's the omnivore option and there's the vegan option. Mm -hmm. So it's great, great food for everybody. Okay. Well, back to you, Amy. There's a couple things going on over here that are interesting. First of all, we got to talk about this siphon coffee. Mm. Yes. Now, Amy, I, I looked at the pictures of this and I'm thinking to myself, who is doing this? This makes this is like, you know, you just think it can't be any more pour over precious than it already is because people have all kinds of equipment where they I feel like they, you know, pour over one drop of hot water on one grain of coffee and make it just perfect. <laughs> so now we've gone to this thing that's called siphon coffee that was it, it appears to have been um mostly pushed forward by Blue Bottle. We have a Blue Bottle in Cambridge. I think there's others in, around town. But you tell us what it is, and then I'm going to play a little piece from the company that's that's making a home version of this. But go ahead, tell, first tell us what Siphon Coffee is all about. 
Okay, well, to be fair, um, it does, this is a technology, this is basically making uh, coffee with vacuum technology. And it is something that dates back to the mid 1800s. It's based on the idea that coffee, many people feel that coffee tastes best when it's brewed at a cooler temperature. And so by creating a vacuum environment, you can get water to boil at a cooler temperature. And the idea is that it extracts all the rich flavor of the coffee, but none of the bitterness. So that's the principle behind it. And there are lots of different ways that people have approached this over the years. It was always round, but it became, it definitely became a big trend in Japan. And then Blue Bottle Coffee, which is based on the West Coast, started bringing it and set up these siphon coffee bars using this very expensive equipment in their place, in their shops. And yes, you can get it in Cambridge and in, in Brookline. You can also find it at places like Jaho and Coe and Thinking Cup and Burismo around the Boston area. Um, and yes, there is this, uh, there's this home system, which is, is Kickstarter funded called Siphonista. And it's, uh, it's about to hit the market this summer. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Here's a clip from Tiger Corporation and their product is called Siphonista Automatic Siphon Coffee Brewing System. Here's why Siphonista is revolutionary. The flavor, Siphon's rich taste and aroma, reimagined. Siphonista uses steam and vacuum technology to brew coffee, bringing out the full potential of the coffee beans, just like the siphon method. It's siphon, yet it's easy. Automated siphon coffee brewing system. I mean, the guy sounds really good, I have to say, talking about it. <laughs> So, so that's rather enticing. But oh my God, as this is really something. We should mention this piece of equipment is in the four to five hundred dollar range. But for people who are very serious about their cooking and brewing and coffee equipment, I, I suppose this will not stop them from purchasing it. This is pretty interesting, though. So yeah, you know, I'm I'm like coffee nerd adjacent. I'm not a coffee nerd, but I love to spend time in coffee nerd bars and just kind of see the level of precision and craft that they bring to coffee making. So I'm kind of more of an observer of this trend. I think I'm fancy because I have an espresso machine. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's Uh, enough for me. (laughs) I know. This is like a whole other thing. And I've been to Blue Bottle, I think first in California and saw they, you know, what they do with all of the stuff. So it does taste good, I have to say. It does. Uh, It is. um, Something to be said for it. And now let me just ask this question because it, it begs the question for me because I don't know all the details. If if you are getting better flavor, so the theory goes, by having cooler temperatures, is that why cold brew is so exciting for people? Yeah, I would say, you know, the flavor profile of cold brew is uh, is different. Um, I think the downside of cold brew is that, you know, the beans are sitting in the water for a really long time to get the flavor out. And so I think the um, siphon method uh, fans would argue that, you know, what you really want to do is make siphon coffee and then chill it because then uh-huh. you have a perfect flavor profile. <laughs> got it. Got it. All right. Well, while you're talking, let's talk about the 80s food revival. All of a sudden, it's come back. It's French onion, soup mix, sun-dried tomatoes, quiche, blackened food, sugar cereal. Let me say before you speak, Amy, French onion soup mix never went away from me because I never used it to make soup. I always put it in stuff. <laughs> like, or in pot roast. 
but now I think it's more that the you know millennials and Gen Zers have figured it out. Um, but it's, it's amazing, and it's this wonderful shortcut. I I feel I honestly feel like you know hashtag justice for sun dried tomatoes because they were so reviled after the eighties. They were just. They were seen as they were overdone back then and everybody got sick of them and they became this punchline, but they are so delicious. I mean, do you like a mommy? Do you like intense flavor? Like that's exactly what sun-dried tomatoes have. That's what I say, you know, and what's wrong with blackened food? Maybe yeah. I got my New Orleans, uh, you know, relatives and, and uh, food cred down that way. I'd love it. So. And <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to see a lot of these trends come back. And honestly, sugar seal is so funny that this this is I part I just rediscovered this this, <laughs> this I think it used to be called like super sugar crisps. Yes, um, it, yes. Yeah. It is the most delicious cereal that has ever been. Oh my god! <laughs> a lot and a lot of these French onion uh, soup mix packets are actually from the eighties. Oh, um, that thanks, stuff, Jonathan. That stuff never. That stuff never expires. So, <laughs> thanks a lot, Jonathan. Well, uh, let's, uh, Jonathan. Now that you're speaking, let's talk about uh, the wildfire impact on wine and how winemakers have figured out ways to actually extract the good part and keep going. Yes, you know, um, the 2020 vintage from California, and specifically from um, Napa, uh, uh, northern Napa and northern Sonoma particularly, we think of this as the vintage that dare not speak its name. Uh, Mm -hmm. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to think about it. I was just out in California uh, earlier in the year. People are still getting over physically, emotionally, literally getting over these fires and are now working with and dealing with the, in some cases, smoke-damaged wines that they have from the 2020 vintage. And the question is, what do you do with it? How do you save it? Can it be saved and People ask all the time, do vintage years matter? And in California, typically not so much. California's got awesome weather almost all the time. So not such a big deal in California usually. But in the case of this kind of uh, smoke damage, 2020 is an important and troubled vintage year. Except I was really interested in in what you're pointing out is the upblending, mm. where they're taking some of the some of the wines affected and then blending them with other vintages, and so yes. what you could end up with was a you know for for better a slightly smoky taste that actually is interesting. That's a complete possibility. You know, depending on how the wine is labeled in California, whether it's like Sonoma County, Sonoma Valley, California. Um, it, it is permissible in some cases to blend across vintages and blend different vintage years. It's, it's euphemistically called up blending. You know, let's say you had some smoky wine and you cleaned it up. One of the things that people are experiencing is that, yeah, maybe you clean up the smoky taste, but what, what, do, what do you have after that? What, other, what, what else are you cleaning up? Are you automatically left with great wine? Can you just dial out the smoke part? Of course not. So you might deal with the smoky component, but you might have wine that you don't want to sell under your main label. Mm-hmm. 
So it would be possible to up blend it into next year or even the year after's wines, or like what you're talking about, maybe you have some smoky wine and you find that you're up blending that to add a touch of that. Maybe a little bit of that's okay. Um, kind of like but... a mezcal kind of situation. <laughs> can, you it know. Can, it can, yeah, mm -hmm. ex exactly. And we already detect um, uh, smoky, toasted, smoky notes in wine, which we admire. Exactly. Um, you know, the issue with the smoke taint, the issue with the contamination of the grapes is that the smoke from these wildfires is not like organic, biodynamic, all natural smoke. It's woods and abandoned cars and roofs and tires, all kinds of unthinkable burning toxic material as well. Okay. And, you know, the damage that it does is beyond just, you know, a, kind of a natural smoke tone to it. So you have to, you, you got to filter and do some other stuff to really there, there, make that work. There's some other, other yeah. things, scientific, other uh, scientific techniques like, you know, fining and filtering, reverse osmosis. Some winemakers are making vodka, you know, mm. Okay. And that, that's, that's what their wine becomes, you know, the alcohol, literally the alcohol that was in the wine stripped of everything else. Which I would point out would be delicious with flower syrups. <laughs> let me, let me just point that out. <laughs> you know what, this is a natural fit. And, and, and I, I know we're jumping here, but I think this is a natural fit to this dirty Shirley drink that Absolutely. we were going to talk about yes i'm thinking you can use that when you make a shirley temple you could you you could use some of these awesome syrups amy that you were talking about early on um to really class up a shirley temple and so let's talk about it the dirty shirley is the drink of the summer everybody's talking about it and it comes from the classic non-alcoholic shirley temple which was quite sweet had uh, grenadine in it, maraschino cherry on top. Mm -hmm. um, and it was what people who did not drink would order. Uh, but now it's coming back and people are, as Jonathan has said, classing it up. And um, Amy, this is a great thing then. Have you had it? <laughs> I have not had it yet, um, but I, I now I know what to order. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if we did, you're right, Jonathan, if you did it with uh, some of the flower syrups, it could really be a high end yeah. dirty Shirley. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're talking about a return to an 80s consciousness in some of these exactly. foods. This is a return. You know, you know, the Shirley Temple was something that kids would order when you would go out to dinner with your parents. The, the, if you were a girl, you'd order the Shirley Temple, which was Sprite and Grenadine and two or three of these super sweet cherries. Um, if you were a boy, you would order the Roy Rogers, right? That was Coke, Coke and Grenadine and some of these cherries. And now it's exactly the same recipe, except you hit, hit it with a big mess of the cheapest vodka you can find. And there you go. And we should note that it's named after uh, the child star. So people may know that. You have to go back and take a look yeah. if you've child not heard Child star of from the 30s, yes. uh, 30s, 40s. Right. Shirley Temple. So go back and, and check that out. All right. I want to move on to another throwback to, um, I don't know if it's nostalgia because it's only been two years gone, but Taco Bell has just caused all kinds of uh, excitement because they're bringing back its cult favorite Mexican pizza. It's new version, apparently, and fans demanded that it come back. Let's take a listen to a 
commercial for it, the original product back in 1988. There's something very unusual going on in Taco Bell. Something you wouldn't expect. We're making pizza. Mexican pizza. It's like pizza, but it's different. With a crispier double tortilla crust, ground beef, and two kinds of cheese. More fresh ingredients. And it's made for one person. Mexican pizza. Maybe you wouldn't expect it from an ordinary fast food place. But at Taco Bell, you would. All right, so what you listened to was the old version. Coming soon, Dolly Parton and Doja Cat, you know, are are coordinating, uh, collaborating for a TikTok musical called Mexican Pizza the Musical. (laughs) So I think this is pretty interesting. I'm sure it's going to be really fun. And I've never had this thing. Have you ever had it, Amy? No, I can't say I'm a big Taco Bell fan. Um, uh, No, no. Uh, it's just not, not never been my, you know, my yeah. thing, but, um, and I, I love pizza, but this is not calling to me, but boy, I mean, the promotion for the executive who, who made the call on this, because I think for people, this feels like, it's almost like a signal that even though we are still living with COVID, it's like symbolically the COVID era is over and the pizza is back. <laughs> I know something like that. I've never had it either. I don't hang out at Taco Bell, but let me tell you something. It's worked for me. I will be lining up trying to taste this because I'm really interested now. Like, why is everybody so excited about it? Um, well, is it am I not am I not understanding this right? Or is, is does this not insult two great culinary traditions at once? Well, some people well, would I, say that. Yes, absolutely. I, some people would say that. Other people would say they've made it accessible. Yeah, and it's just fun, and it's not serious, and it's you know, yeah. Don't it's 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 meant to be sort of. Uh, the the Americanized fun version of okay, Mexican, I guess yeah. The fast what's this actually fast food? It's the fast food version of you know. I don't even know. I, I it's sort of pan Mexican, if you will. I don't know that it's mix. <laughs> I don't know if it's Tex Mex. It's not. It's somewhere in between all of those. Uh, uh, they took stuff that seemed to work and that it came off the menu in 2020 and I guess people have been freaking out about it ever since. But this goes along with another interesting piece that came up. So some Johns Hopkins students created a burrito tape so that you can eat your burrito without your burrito falling apart. Now you can get good burritos. You don't necessarily have to get these at Taco Bell. I think that was their point. As you know, burritos are a flour tortilla and they're usually pretty well stuffed. And these students came up with edible adhesive strips. This obviously was uppermost in their minds, Amy. (laughs) I don't mean to sound cranky, but to me, this is an example of like, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. I mean, a good burrito maker will fold that burrito so it doesn't, you know, and, and wraps it in aluminum foil so you don't, it doesn't fly open. I've never had a problem with an exploding burrito personally. So I don't feel like I need this. But, um, you know, it's it. And I also they, they, they apparently aren't aren't revealing what goes what what it's made of. They assure us that it's food safe. Yeah, um, I feel a little suspicious. I wonder I wonder what I wonder what else you would use. You could use that for I, somebody's going to come up with something. I, I know mm-hmm. some. And so I bet you we'll be having this conversation not long from now where this mm-hmm. stuff is everywhere and used in different ways. I, I'm just expecting it to be. All right. Here's another interesting thing, Jonathan. Coors, that would be the beer people, are making plant-based milk called Golden Wing. 
Golden Wing. Um, the interesting part of this story is not so much that, you know, here's yet another milk, non-milk product added to the Pantheon. Um, the story, the interesting part of the story here is that this is barley milk, and it's made from what is called in the beer industry, uh, euphemistically spent grain, which essentially is used barley, the leftover, the, the barley that is left over after it's been used to be made into beer and and ale. So this is about sustainability. We're, we're... So this is about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, this is, you, you can imagine how much spent grain an industrial beer maker like Molson Coors produces per hour. If they can find something to do with it and can find some way to turn it into another product that is um, saleable, um, that's good for them. It's also part, instead of just throwing it in the trash, it's it's calories that we're able to recover. And we're seeing also a, a, a huge growth, not, you know, um, not just in, in this type of non-milk product, but we're, we're also seeing Dunkin' Donuts has its own brand. Mm-hmm. We're seeing these different non-dairy milk products being branded as well. And now we have this connection to the beer spirits world as well. Well, I would just point out that Molson Coors changed their name to Molson Coors Beverage Company, not just Brewing Company, because they want to be able to do other things. Mm-hmm. And that okay. plant-based milk of all kinds, that's oat and soy and potato and avocado and you name it, mm-hmm. is uh, brought in $2.6 billion, 16% of all grocery store milk sales. So they got into it for very good money reasons. Mm-hmm. They claim they're only a few ingredients, water, barley, sunflower oil, pink Himalayan salt, and shiitake mushroom extract, which yes. offers a malty sweetness, they said, reminiscent of milk left over in a bowl of cereal. And on top of that, Golden Wing has 60% less sugar, 50% more calcium, and twice as much vitamin D. And so, the mushroom component, the, the, the shiitake component, is um, also supposed to contribute texture. One of the issues with these plant-based milks is one, how much they taste like actual milk, but also two, how they how they feel. Yeah. You know, do they feel like milk as well? That's a that's a big element in making a, a product that's going to be accepted by people. And that's where that that's where the shiitake mushroom comes in. Which also just leads me to Patagonia provisions. Again, sustainability is the issue making Patagonia, as we know, is an outdoor clothing company. They're making food now. And Fusili is one of the products they make that's pasta. I'm really excited about this product because it's so smart. This is a, a, a pasta. It's a regular pasta made with flour. However, it's made with a particular variety of flour. It's a domesticated variety of what was a wild perennial wheatgrass developed in the 70s. It's called Kernza. Um, the amazing thing about this is most wheat that we eat is is an annual plant. So at the end of the season, it's, you know, it's plowed under and we start again in the next season. And, you know, we understand more and more uh, with plant, uh, with agricultural science that, you know, a healthy soil is a microbiome. And when you till it and turn it over, you're disrupting 
all of the layers of you know bacteria and fungi and things that are making that soil so healthy, you're killing this microbiome when you expose it to oxygen. So when you have a plant like Kernza, which stays in the ground and just comes up the next season, you're preserving and you're, you're preventing erosion. Also, the, the roots of this plant go much deeper than traditional wheat. Wheat was bred to have shallow roots because it makes it easier to harvest. And a lot of people who may have sensitivities to gluten may not have full celiac disease, but may find that it just doesn't agree with them. They may find that, that eating these deeper rooted grains is actually very tolerable because they have a different nutritional profile and those roots are accessing minerals and other nutrients that are deeper in the soil. And so, you know, if you find that you're someone who can't digest pasta well, but you don't have celiac disease, check out this product because it may solve that problem for you. Is it tasty though, Amy? It is. It yeah, it tastes like a really nice, you know, grain product. So, you know, it tastes weedy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I think it's, I'm so excited about this. I hope we'll be making bread and exploring other ways to use this kind of grain. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. We have plenty of new products and trends to explore uh, coming up in these summer months, and I'm looking forward to it. And I thank both of you for joining me today. Thanks, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Amy Traverso is the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of GBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Coming up, Roxbury artist Napoleon Jones Henderson's life's work has been dedicated to the beauty of Black culture. More than 50 years ago, he joined with members of the Chicago art collective Afrocobra, committed to using their art to empower Black communities. But it was during his decades-long career in Boston where Jones Henderson flourished, creating his African-inspired mixed-media pieces. Now his colorful and expressive work is on display at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art in a new exhibit, I Am As I Am A Man. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 